Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's A Disciple's Point of View. I'm really hoping and praying this week my voice will last and I won't choke because I was a little bit under the weather last week, and that is why I could not do a podcast. I actually had COVID, as I put out there on the Twitter sphere, and I'm feeling much better now. I'm still feeling some residual effects, so forgive me, please, if I sound a little bit scratchy or if I have to pause in order to cough, et cetera, whatnot. However, let's get right into it instead of talking about that. This week's topic, we're going to talk about something that's kind of timely. It didn't. I didn't quite plan it this way, but it's just kind of how... Things turned out. We're going to talk this week about what the Bible says about ghosts. I know Halloween's coming up, right? So I didn't necessarily plan it this way. It was just I was sitting in my podcast chair that I have where I live, and I just decided, you know what? The aliens thing really took off in a major way. And I'm not necessarily trying to replicate that, although I am kind of. But um, I'm, you know, I thought this is probably a good topic to cover. Um, this is not something that, you know, say people in Christian ministries ever really cover a lot unless you're with Got Questions and you get asked umpteen million questions. And so you have a lot of different answers on your website. But, you know, it's like somebody told me about the Aliens podcast. It's like, you know, you hear about God, you hear about aliens, but you don't typically hear about the two connected. All right. And you don't necessarily hear a whole lot, at least in Christian circles, about ghosts, right? You know, a lot of people believe they exist, just like a lot of people a believe aliens exist. But, you know, they're not totally sure what the Bible has to say about it. And that's what the podcast is about this week. We're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about it, okay? We're not going to necessarily go with extra biblical sources. I'll probably mention a couple just to give you a little bit of a background. I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers, but that's okay. Because basically when it comes to figuring out what the Bible says about X, Y, and Z, we have to have our beliefs challenged. We have to have our thoughts challenged. We have to have our viewpoints challenged. Even if we have ardent beliefs and whatnot, sometimes it's good to challenge those beliefs and to see if they're truly biblical and stand up to the test. Because realistically speaking, to have any kind of a viewpoint whatsoever about anything, it has to be challengeable, but it also has to be teachable, right? And we have to hold ourselves to a standard. We can't let ourselves be blown about by every wind and wave of doctrine that may come up. We have to hold ourselves fast to a standard. And that's why within this podcast and within all my podcasts and within my life, really, I want to hold myself to the standard of the Bible. The Bible is a book, as I explained in the very first episode of this series, what does the Bible say about the Bible? This is something that people have been trying to get rid of for a long time and that God has, in my opinion, in a disciple's point of view, has miraculously preserved for us and is now a compendium. You can go out to a bookstore or nowadays on Amazon. You could order one. You can have one right there on your phone. Um, this is something that is readily available and at your fingertips. But let's go ahead and just jump into our topic today. Now, what does the Bible say about ghosts? I have about three points that I'm going to talk about, three basic points, three basic pillars that I want to hit upon uh, as to what the Bible says about it. And the very first thing that I want to hit on is that the Bible says that it is destined for us to once die and then after that, the judgment. And that's found in Hebrews chapter 9, 27. It says, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And it carries on into an idea that basically Christ died once for sins. 
So basically, it's a comparison. They're utilizing a truth to highlight another truth here that just as we are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, Jesus only appeared one time to die for sin. So he's not dying continually for our sins over and over again, as are taught in some circles. But Jesus only died the one time, rose from the dead the one time, and is efficacious for anybody to come to faith to him and receive eternal life. But juxtaposed with that, we die once, and then after that, the judgment. So the reason why I bring that up is obviously, you know, there are belief systems out there that we reincarnate and that we our spirits are basically like recycled or we go on to another assignment or we become angels. The Bible that is very alien to the Bible, that is a very extra biblical teaching that people can become angels or that people are watching over us. If you really think about it, that is very torturous for that person. They can't reach out to the world of the living. You can't reach out to them, but you get some degree of comfort that they're watching over you, but they can't reach out to you or at best they're, they're, they're moving stuff in your house or freaking you out. It's, it's not at all comforting in my opinion. If, you know, our deceased relatives are running around where we live, you know, just kind of, you know, you know, pushing us around and pushing things around and, and whatnot. The Bible is clear that we face judgment after that. Not necessarily that we face judgment after that, but that's the next thing to come is that we face judgment. So when we also die, if we go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 6, it says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The idea here is that if we're here in the body, that we are not present with the Lord. We do have the presence of God in our lives. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. See also 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But we are not actually corporeally in the presence of God. So, But whenever we are absent from this body, we are present with the Lord. If you find yourself in Christ, if you call upon the name of Christ, you are present with the Lord upon death. This isn't a thing of basically you're hanging out here on earth for a while. You have unfinished business here. You either go and await judgment if you're not a Christian for eternity or you go be with the Lord if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have faith that his sins, or I'm sorry, that that his death atones for your sins, okay? So it is either heaven for believers, and I can back that up with the scriptures. Um, I can also back up that basically being apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. In uh, Philippians 1 verse 23, it says, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Anyway, moving on, that basically that once you uh, are away from the body, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the scripture does support that you go to be with him. In Matthew 25, 46, it says, And these go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And keep in mind, we're not made righteous in of ourselves. We are only righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that is transferred to us. Okay. And another piece of scripture that basically talks about whenever um, unbelievers go and await their punishment whenever uh, they die is in Luke chapter 16, starting in 
verse 22, it says, So it was when the beggar died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That was the Old Testament concept of heaven. If it was thought that basically if you were a righteous person, you were carried to the, the bosom of Abraham, meaning that Abraham was the father of the Jewish faith. He was seen as the pinnacle and the absolute figurehead apart from Moses uh, of the Jewish faith before Jesus Christ. And it was thought that if you were a righteous person upon death, you went to Abraham's bosom. Basically, you were gathered to your people in the afterlife to be with God. Or you went to Sheol, which was basically just simply the grave. But it was thought, basically, if you just simply went to Sheol, that you were basically um, away from the presence of your people and away from Abraham's bosom. Okay, So picking it back up in that verse, it says, The rich man also died and was buried. And being tormented in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So as carrying this idea, keep in mind whenever Jesus is talking, it's basically the rich man and Lazarus. It's a parable that Jesus is talking about, but it's giving us a hint into what is going on in the afterlife. And Hades was uh, this thought, again, of Sheol. This is a bit of more of a... Uh, uh, an expansion that Jesus taught that basically is not just Sheol. Basically, Hades is the idea and thought of a holding place for the unrighteous dead. Those who are going to be judged, those who are not righteous, those who are not seen as seeing as having any kind of reward. Um, you'll see the differentiation here. The rich man who basically put himself first with everything and even ignored Lazarus, who was a poor man in this parable, is being tormented and Lazarus is being comforted in the bosom of Abraham. So it carries this idea that, yes, whenever we die, we go to one of two uh, destinations. We either go towards the righteous or the unrighteous, okay? And the only thing that makes us righteous is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You do not become righteous whatsoever in of yourself, right? This is not something that we can do on our own. And so whenever we die, if you die apart from Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are going to face judgment and that you go to a place then to wait for judgment. You don't wander on the earth. There is no such thing as basically haunting your, your loved one's houses and just kind of watching over them. You go either to judgment or you go to the, uh, the presence of Christ if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay. So that's the first pillar I wanted to hit on. The second pillar I want to hit on is the Bible never paints the picture of spirits of departed people, again, that just wander the earth. That is only said of Satan. I don't know if you're aware of this, but that is only said of Satan. And we, I'm going to make the case that it's also of his minions, i.e. also the fallen angels. Okay, So if we go over to the book of Job, the book of Job is probably one of the most prolific books in the Bible that deals with suffering. Obviously, Job was a very kind of a tortured person who is a, in essence, a believer in the Lord God. Uh, the book of Job is also believed to be the oldest book in the Bible. It was the, uh, of all the books in the Bible that we have, it was the, one of the first ones written. Okay. So this is the oldest one we have. So in chapter one, in verse seven, and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come? So Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and wander, walking back and forth on it. So Satan is pictured in the scriptures as somebody who does wander the earth, somebody who does probably go bump in the night, somebody who does 
move your stuff around or whatnot or causes all that paranormal activity. I don't want to freak you out here, but I mean, it is, this is scripture. This is in the Bible. So in Job chapter two, uh, God asks him the same thing, starting in verse two. And it says, and the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So if anybody or anything is going bump in the night, it is most likely Satan. And I know that kind of a trippy kind of a thought for people to think about, but I mean, it's what the scripture says. And I think if it can be said of the, um, of the fallen angels, or I'm sorry, of the chief of the fallen angels, that is Satan, then it probably is very true too of his minions. Okay. So if we go over to Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 43, Jesus says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And then he goes, takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and then they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first, so that it shall be with this wicked generation. So basically, Jesus is making the idea and comparison here that the evil spirits are basically demons. These are fallen angels here who wander about on the earth. And not only that, they seek to have their home within people. And I think that's because it is Satan and his minions way of imitating God. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about how we are temples of the Holy Spirit. When we come to believe in Jesus Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And that is how we are able to live the life that God has called us to live. That is why we are able to be holy and to live holy and why God's law is written on our hearts and we do God's law instinctively versus simply following a whole bunch of laws and rules. Okay, And so I think that this is basically Satan and his minions imitating God at this point. And not only that, they are the ones who are wandering the earth and seeking refuge somewhere on the earth, but they never find the rest that they're looking for. And the reason why I think these are fallen angels is because in Revelation chapter 12 in verse 9, it says, So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called devil, the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So this is obviously, um, I believe this section of scripture is looking back to a point in eternity past when the rebellion of the angels occurred. And it's talking about basically how war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the, with the dragon, et cetera, whatnot. And oftentimes in scripture, it's like you can have a piece of scripture that it has a both a near and far uh, fulfillment, meaning that, you know, that this could have happened at some point in eternity past, but this also could be a picture of what happens in the final rebellion during the tribulation period, because we see in Job chapter one and two, that Satan is appearing before God. He is counting himself among the angels. Somehow he is Satan at this point. He is the one who is in rebellion and he is presenting himself before God. But this, obviously, this scripture here now is him basically getting booted out of heaven. And I do believe that this is also a picture of probably what did happen in eternity past before Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so let's get back to our topic at hand. If people encounter ghosts, given all everything I've just said, it's most likely demons. 
that they are encountering. It is not ghosts at all. It's not the spirits of the dearly departed. There's another theory that's going around the internet that basically, yeah, okay, fine. These are possibly fallen angels or there's something else. Demons are held to be some, not necessarily fallen angels, but the spirit of the Nephilim that were killed in Genesis chapter 6. If you go over to Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1, there's an interesting bit of scripture here that it does get a lot of debate, but I think probably the safest place to land is more of a supernatural kind of story. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children of them. Those were the mighty men of old, the men of renown, which are the Nephilim. Okay, I know that in this particular scripture, it doesn't call them the Nephilim, but in other pieces of scripture, it does call them the Nephilim. And it was this idea that basically the sons of God pictured here in this scripture are actually angels. And that is supported elsewhere in the scriptures. In the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, it says the sons of God came and appeared before the Lord. The way that it's worded in the scriptures always is indicative of angels. So... Why would God's angels go on into the daughters of men when Jesus said in the Gospels that the angels or that we shall be like the angels of heaven, neither giving in marriage or getting married? Okay, that we will be basically marriageless and sexless at that point. We won't basically we will have transcended beyond that. Now, that piece of scripture that Jesus was talking about isn't indicative of all angels. It says the angels of God. Okay, and I guess technically all are angels of God, but I believe what Jesus was talking about in the particular class of angels he was talking about was the elect angels, those who did not fall, those who are not talked about in Revelation 12, 9. It is those who kept their positions of godly authority, who obeyed God, the two-thirds of the angels who did not rebel. I believe that in Genesis 6, there is a group of fallen angels that rebelled so heavily against God, they took human wives and had sex with them and somehow reproduced. That's the idea here, and that is the idea of the Nephilim. And you see immediately after this union, the flood happens, okay? Because you have a whole bunch of evil and violence all throughout the Old Testament, but God never sends another flood. It is only after this union is mentioned that basically God then decides to flood the whole earth. Because in my opinion, in the opinion of many, that God saw this union as remarkably unholy and he could not let it basically pollute the bloodline for Messiah to come. Because keep in mind, the Proto-Evangelium, which in Genesis 3.15 basically prophesied that the seed of woman would crush the serpent's head. So obviously you have basically the fallen angels at this point who are trying to make keep it from happening and are trying to pollute the bloodline. And keep the Messiah from coming to be. At least that's the uh, one of the prevailing thoughts. The idea that basically the demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim comes from the book of Enoch. And we have to be kind of careful with that. 
Okay, The book of Enoch is an extra-biblical book, and while we do glean some information from it, and there is even a quotation from the book of Enoch in the book of Jude, which is uh, Jude 14 and 15, for whatever reason or another, the Holy Spirit did not allow this to come into the canon of the Bible. See also Daniel chapter 9, 24, where basically God prophesied that he would seal up both vision and prophecy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, basically that all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching and righteousness, etc. And 2 Peter 1, 21, that basically there is no prophecy that came about by their own idea, but basically as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we obviously want to be very careful with that whenever we're referencing an extra biblical book. It's good to basically maybe glean some information, maybe get some ideas and whatnot, but to necessarily quote that on par with the Bible, I believe is setting a dangerous precedent and I believe is also kind of opening oneself up to error. That is my opinion. That is a disciple's point of view. And the third pillar I want to land upon is there was this uh, story in the Old Testament where the first king of Israel, King Saul, his, basically long story short, God gave him an instruction to do. He was, I believe, to destroy the Amalekites completely and totally and thoroughly. He didn't. He kept, uh, he spared the women and children. He kept some of the best livestock. He kept some of the treasures and whatnot. So basically God said, you know what? I'm taking the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to somebody who is after my own heart, okay? And Saul didn't like that. It took a long time for basically Saul to finally advocate the throne and for King David, who basically was the man after God's own heart, to come to power and actually sit upon the throne of Israel. But right before, like literally right before he died, Saul, I guess, you know, because God had no longer answered him, he was no longer answering his prayers, wanted to consult with the prophet Samuel, who had died. And so he had already long since cast out all the divinators and mediums, spiritual mediums from the land of Israel. But he was so desperate because God was no longer answering his prayers and the Holy Spirit had already departed from him that he sought out a medium in Endor, I guess was the name of the village or town or area. And this is in 1 Samuel 28. And he goes to this woman. She recognizes him. She's like, oh, my gosh, you're Saul. You're here to kill me. And he goes, no, 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 don't be afraid. I just need to, to talk to Samuel. Can you call up Samuel? And she goes, okay, fine. And um, she actually discovered that he was Saul after she did indeed bring up Samuel. And she recognized it was indeed Samuel. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm, this is actually happening. So it leads me to believe that probably she probably faked it for a long time. And now all of a sudden something is actually coming to pass. She is actually bringing back a spirit from the dead. And in verse 15, it says, now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me. And God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, etc." In verse 16, so why do you ask me seeing the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Okay. And so basically, long story short, he went on to say that uh, Saul and his sons would die the very next day at the hand of the Philistines, which were ancient arch enemies of Israel. And it did. It came to pass. He died. And the thing of it is, is he also violated the law of God here because in Leviticus 19.31, it says, Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them. 
uh, to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. The thought and prevailing idea here is that basically God is prohibiting the idea of trying to contact the dead or contact ghosts or to have any kind of mediums at all, because basically these are likely evil spirits. Uh, where Saul contacted Samuel is the only time recorded in scripture where a spirit was actually contacted after they had died. Okay. There is no other recorded time where mediums or spiritualists were able to actually do that. And it was actually that departed spirit. It is likely any time that ever happens, if you've ever experienced it, you are likely encountering a fallen angel who is imitating that person. Because keep in mind, these entities don't need to sleep like we do. They're they're spirits. They're, you know, they don't need sleep like we do. They're, they're, they exist on a completely different plane. So they have a long time to watch us. So would it make sense that if they have a long time in watching you and maybe they're assigned to various people or various leaders? As a matter of fact, there is one point in the book of Daniel where, um, you know, he, um, uh, the angel Gabriel was uh, delayed in coming and he says, hey, I was delayed in coming because of the prince of Persia, who was an evil spirit who was over the kingdom at that time of Persia. So there appears to be some sort of hierarchical order of demons that are actually assigned and it makes sense there seems to be some degree of a hierarchy when you go to ephesians chapter 6 it talks about principalities and powers and all this and that and it kind of seems to give some degree of a ranking so anytime that you probably encounter spirits that know something about you will keep in mind they've been watching us for a really long time in the book of enoch angels are called watchers they watch us they 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 may have nothing else to do but watch us you know as a matter of fact um in the book of hebrews it says that are not all are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation so the chief end of an angel was to serve mankind because we are made in the image of god we are god's highest pinnacle in all of creation okay so that covers pretty much the three pillars that I wanted to talk about so that what the Bible actually says about ghosts here gives the idea and credence that if you are communicating with a ghost or you have some sort of paranormal activity happening in your house, it is likely, according to the Bible, due to a fallen angel or a demon who is either trying to intimidate you, trying to scare you, trying to keep you from believing in Jesus Christ. Because if they can keep you deceived enough, it's almost like a defense attorney here in the United States. They don't have to prove people innocent. They just simply have to cast reasonable doubt that they didn't commit the crime, right? And it's the exact same idea. All they're trying to do is basically give you some degree of doubt whether or not the Bible is true, whether or not God is true, right? And if they can bring any shadow of doubt of that into your life, then in essence, they have basically won in their little miniature war against God at that point. And at this stage in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never put your faith into Jesus Christ for eternal life, I want you to listen to the next segment coming up in just a few seconds. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, 
if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus is who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that he is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and heart and everything through a process, if you will, to embody what has already taken place in your heart. By simply praying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life, and I want to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do, and your life will change. Your life will change not so much materially, not so much in terms of the world, but your life will change in your standing before God in that you may know that you can have eternal life. The Apostle John wrote that when he was pinning 1 John. He said, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but so that you can know. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, I have the links for the social networks that I am connected on in my bio for this podcast. I'm also available at Gmail at DisciplePOV, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.